The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. What you're seeing is real, very, very real. This is Thursday, December 20th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news by patronizing my sponsors and with the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. This week, we found out that everything we know is right. On Monday, two independent studies by respected outside government organizations commissioned by senators from both parties reached four conclusions. One, that Russia did conduct a cyber attack on the 2016 presidential election, as we were warned by all U.S. intelligence agencies two years ago. Two, that Russia conducted the attack primarily on social media, but that it had used Instagram as much or more than it had used Facebook to spread disinformation as well as propaganda. As previously reported, Russia also used Twitter in this cyber attack. Three, that the Russian attack targeted Democratic voters, but most especially African Americans and Bernie Sanders supporters for the purpose of sharply dividing Americans politically and thereby electing Donald Trump. And four, that the attack continued beyond the election. The study concludes that the Russian government efforts first targeted Trump's Republican rivals, then Hillary Clinton, whom Vladimir Putin has despised since she called out a rigged Putin election. The first study was conducted by the Texas cybersecurity firm New Knowledge with help from researchers at Columbia University and Canfield Research. It's called the Knowledge Report. The second report was written by propaganda researchers at Oxford University with help from a social media analysis company called Graphica. Both studies were commissioned jointly by Republicans and Democrats on the Senate Intelligence Committee after Republicans had claimed without proof that the findings of U.S. intelligence were politically motivated. Republicans are now faced with believing these independent studies or ignoring them because the Russia attack is no longer arguable. Now the details of these nonpartisan studies. They found that a Russian company known as Internet Research Agency used American technology and fake American names to create accounts on every social media platform, including YouTube, Reddit, Tumblr, Pinterest, Vine, and Google+. They found that Russia's divide-and-conquer attack on this country continued even after the 2016 election on a smaller scale, but then spiked again at the appointment of Robert Mueller as a special counsel to investigate Russian interference. It was one thing to get Trump elected, now to make sure it sticks. Russians posing as Americans posted and tweeted that Mueller had once worked with radical Islamic groups, just as they would later tweet that the FBI's James Comey was a dirty cop. The Instagram account Army of Jesus, for example, first appeared in 2015 with screen grabs from The Muppet Show and The Simpsons. By early 2016, it was all about Jesus, and by summer, it was posting memes comparing Trump to Jesus and Clinton to Satan. But there were hundreds of these fake Russian accounts, and using African-American-sounding names, the Russian government used Gmail to recruit and even pay U.S. activists of all races to stage rallies and spread the memes. The overwhelming focus of the cyber attack was on black Americans in efforts that include trying to get them to vote at the wrong times and in the wrong places. Blackstagram, which was actually a Russian account all along, had a third of a million followers. And there were dozens more like that. Blacktivist.info, black.soul.us. 
Together, these 30 Russian accounts posing as African-Americans in the U.S. had a following of well over a million people. Black voter turnout was down in 2016 for the first time in 20 years. By 2017, Russia had flooded Instagram and had gotten more than 76 million likes and shares and retweets from American voters. Russia was all over Black Lives Matter and the subject of police brutality. Ethnic strife has worked for Russia in other countries, and in 2016, it was our turn here in the U.S. When the Blue Lives Matter movement appeared, Russia was all over that too. Anything to sharply divide Americans. If you know someone who bought an I Support Law Enforcement t-shirt through Vine, Reddit, Tumblr, or Medium, that was Russia, which collected the money through PayPal. All of this stuff was demographically targeted. On Twitter, Russia targeted intellectuals and journalists. Instagram was for the kids. And Facebook's ad tool helped Russia target people by geography, politics, and race because to conquer, you must divide. It worked. And it's still working today at this precise moment. Russia didn't create American racial strife, but it threw gas on the embers. Americans of all colors and backgrounds took the bait. There were fake Russian accounts aimed at conservative voters. But the effort was even bigger to hurt Clinton and help Bernie Sanders and Jill Stein. Stein supporters were urged to either vote for her or stay home on Election Day, and many of them did one or the other. Even at this precise moment, millions of Americans still don't know or don't want to admit they've been had by Russia and perhaps by some of their own fellow U.S. citizens. If any American helped Russia conduct its attack on this country, the attack aimed at dividing us and electing Trump, they have committed the most serious crimes a person can commit against the United States of America. A district court judge in Washington, D.C. thinks Trump's first national security advisor committed the most serious crimes a person can commit against this country. The scheduled sentencing hearing on Tuesday for retired Army General Mike Flynn went much differently than anyone expected. Mueller's prosecutors, two specialists in national intelligence, came to court that day recommending no prison time for Flynn because he had been so very, very helpful to their investigation, balancing out the very, very bad things they say he has done. Flynn and his lawyers came to court that day asking for no prison time, so the hearing was expected to be quick and simple, like usual. But everyone also knew it was ultimately up to the judge whether Flynn does or doesn't go to prison. And that turned out to be bad news for Flynn and Donald Trump. Because some of the bad things Flynn now admits he has done and some of the good things he's done to help the investigation could be seen by the judge in the sentencing papers that we have not seen. Those things remain redacted while this investigation continues. And the judge was outraged and angry and not so sure that Flynn's good deeds of the past year outweigh his lying and law-breaking in the years that preceded this one. The judge expressed his disgust and disdain for what Flynn had done and even asked if maybe Flynn should be charged with treason. He should not. The law defines treason as assisting an enemy with whom the U.S. is at war. The judge was unfamiliar because it doesn't come up much. Mueller's prosecutors weren't expecting the question either and politely told the judge they hadn't considered a treason charge. We are not at war with Russia despite its attack on us. Nor are we at war with Turkey, which is the country Flynn was serving as an unregistered foreign agent. 
So no, treason cannot be considered for Flynn or anyone else in this scandal. And it was unnerving to hear a federal judge pose the question, but it was also starkly telling of the judge's mood regarding Michael T. Flynn. He asked the prosecutors if there were perhaps other crimes with which Flynn could be charged. A high-ranking senior official of the government, he scoffed, making false statements to the Federal Bureau of Investigation while on the physical premises of the White House. Arguably, said Judge Sullivan to Flynn, you sold your country out. District Judge Emmett Sullivan, who'd been appointed to various federal judgeships by three presidents from both parties, made repeated gestures toward the flag of the United States in reference to the crimes of which Flynn had been a big part. It was looking as though Flynn was headed for jail in spite of his cooperation, in spite of Mueller's recommendation, and in spite of the pleas of Mike Flynn through his attorneys. But the judge also recognized the help Flynn had given to investigators and suggested at least five times that Flynn's sentencing be delayed at least until March, until the bigger investigation that the judge now knows about could be completed. Mueller's prosecutors would not have gone to court on Tuesday of this week recommending no jail time for Flynn if they hadn't already gotten all the information they need from him. But again and again, the judge asked Mueller's prosecutors if maybe there wasn't a little something else they could get out of Flynn. Flynn and his lawyers were ready to get this over with, so Flynn could be back on the streets as a free man at the end of the hearing, back outdoors, where protesters awaited, chanting, lock him up about a man who'd led Trump supporters in a similar chant about Hillary Clinton. But over and over again, the judge asked Flynn and his lawyers if they were sure they wanted him to go ahead with sentencing. And by asking repeatedly whether these two parties who'd come to court that day for a sentencing wouldn't like to delay it for another 90 days in case Flynn has something else to say about the developments the judge now knows we can expect. After a handful of pitches from the judge, the prosecutors and defense attorneys finally got what the judge was saying, and although Mueller doesn't think Flynn has much, if anything, left to give, agreed to wait until, say, March, which is when the Russia probe is now expected to conclude. There is one other important aspect to the Mike Flynn case that mustn't go unnoticed. In their agreement that Flynn get no jail time, the lawyers proposed that Flynn deserved extra mercy since FBI agents didn't tell him that lying to them was a serious federal felony. As if the man who ran the Defense Intelligence Agency didn't know how these things work, the judge didn't buy it any more than you do. But with his no-jail argument going public, was Flynn sending a message to Trump that he's still open to a pardon? Robert Mueller's been investigating possible behind-the-scenes promises of pardons to Paul Manafort and Mike Flynn, and Mueller's likely learned much more about that from a cooperative Flynn. And was Trump signaling back to Flynn when he tweeted just before the hearing began, wishing Flynn luck and reminding him and the rest of us, no collusion? Or was that claim about not being told that lying to the FBI is a crime also a message to Trump supporters nationwide that the FBI is every bit as crooked as they apparently believe? Trump supporters from the halls of Congress to Fox News to the folks in the red hats picked that up and ran with it, that the FBI agents had tricked Mike Flynn into lying to them and about something that wasn't all that important anyway. But Mike Flynn let his old friends down that day when he told the judge the FBI had been fair, that he knew he was lying, and that he knew it was a crime. 
The Trumpublican claim that the FBI had tricked Flynn into lying fell completely apart. And the judge made it clear on Tuesday that things have just gotten very real, complete with flag pointing and talk of treason. In the words of the New York Times, the hearing underscored the gravity of the inquiry by the special counsel and the enormous consequences for those ensnared in it. For a man who's been wrongly accused, Trump is behaving as a man who is guilty and backed into a corner. In a weekend flurry of tweets, Trump called the Russia investigation lies, a scam, a hoax, a witch hunt, and an insurance policy for Democrats. Trump claimed the FBI raid on Michael Cohen's office was illegal, calling it a break-in. Trump slammed his fellow Republicans for not crying foul on that legally search-warranted raid on Cohen's office. And along the way, he called Michael Cohen a rat with a capital R, introducing mob speak into the White House vocabulary. Saturday night, comic actor Ben Stiller appeared as Michael Cohen in the opening sketch of Saturday Night Live. The sketch was a parody of It's a Wonderful Life, a chance to see what Trump's life might be like if he hadn't been elected president. At two minutes before 9 a.m. on Sunday morning, Trump was raging again on Twitter. Quote, a real scandal is the one-sided coverage hour by hour of networks like NBC and Democrat spin machines like Saturday Night Live. It's all nothing less than unfair news coverage and dem commercials. Should be tested in courts. Can't be legal, he wrote, adding a question mark after can't be legal. Only defame and belittle, Trump exclaimed, adding collusion? There is a reason the president is firing in multiple directions, at law and justice, at his fellow Republicans, as well as his rival Democrats, at his once dedicated fixer lawyer, and at a comedy TV show. He's firing in every direction because he's under scrutiny from every direction. His business, his so-called charity, his campaign, his transition, his inauguration, and his presidency. Almost every public thing Trump's done in the last 10 years is under investigation. Almost everything. 17 investigations in all, the most of any president ever, a milestone for him and the nation. The president of the United States is under criminal investigation, he's under counterintelligence investigation, and he faces multiple civil suits at both state and federal levels. And despite his posturing that he's unafraid of these bogus investigations, he is afraid. Telling people close to him this past week, he now feels as though he might be impeached. He had a hard time finding a new chief of staff. After being turned down by three candidates, Trump hired a guy who was already working for him, Office of Management and Budget Director Mick Mulvaney. And the president is increasingly isolated, more so than at any other time in his two-year presidency. He'll spend the next two weeks at his Mar-a-Lago retreat before returning to face all the things covered here and more. To quote the Washington Post, David Farenthold, as the bad news has rolled in, the president has cut back his public schedule. He spent more time than usual in his official residence this week, Farenthold writes, with more than two dozen hours of unstructured executive time, said a person familiar with his schedule. It's been scandal and prison for Trump's top campaign people. The campaign manager in prison, guilty on some counts, still facing other charges, and likely imprisoned for the rest of his life. 
the deputy campaign manager guilty and cooperating with prosecutors, the first national security advisor guilty and cooperating, Trump's accountant granted immunity and cooperating, Trump's personal lawyer and fix-it guy guilty and cooperating even as he heads for prison, the tabloid publisher who helped cover up Trump's alleged infidelities is now cooperating in exchange for immunity. There are and likely will be others. Mueller's charged 33 people so far, including 26 Russians who were part of the propaganda campaign favoring Trump. He's gotten one Russian, Maria Butina, to plead guilty and to cooperate while she's behind bars. We have since learned this Russian spy is about to testify for some grand juries as well. Whatever Mueller does with all of this is unknowable at this point, but we know he has options. And we know there is evidence both of obstruction of justice and co-conspiracy with a hostile foreign government that sought to sharply divide Americans, even tearing families apart. And for the purpose of putting enough thumb on the U.S. election scale to tilt it for Trump and against Hillary Clinton, who Vladimir Putin despises for calling him out as a fraud. And now the suspected schemes of Donald Trump are proving true and proving that he has, as suspected, been lying about those schemes. Lies exposed, Trump's no-collusion position is sorely weakened. And Chuck and Nancy and SNL had freshly made him out to be a buffoon on TV where he had once ruled the boardroom or pretended to. From the very beginning, Trump had fretted that the Russia investigation would call into question the legitimacy of his presidency. At least from a moral standpoint, important people are saying exactly that publicly now. The legitimacy of other presidents had been called into question, Nixon, Clinton, George W. Bush, Obama, but none as soundly as this one. No wonder the president was tweeting so angrily and so often on a weekend that most Americans spent Christmas shopping and watching football. On Tuesday, Trump tweeted torrents. During his Tuesday morning executive time, the president spent two hours lashing out at Mueller, Christopher Steele, the FBI's Peter Strzok, Hillary, the Democrats, the Federal Reserve, several social media companies, and undocumented immigrants. So many distractions to choose from as 17 investigations close in, one of them forcing to shut down his so-called charity, the Trump Foundation. Trump's praise of Vladimir Putin, his desire to lift sanctions on Russia and improve relations, and his claims the Russia attacks was a hoax, and his kowtowing to Putin on election interference have not gone unnoticed as we get the most clear and detailed confirmation of the Russian attack to date in those two independent bipartisan reports to the United States Senate. Also on Tuesday, a weakened president backed down twice he flipped from being proud to shut down the government as he held out hopelessly for Democrats to give him $5 billion for his border wall. White House spokeswoman Sarah Sanders Tuesday morning announced the administration was more interested in shutting down the border than the government. She said they'd get the money some other way. She didn't say how. Trump also backed down in the face of a damning lawsuit from the New York State's Attorney General's office. The headlines read that Trump had agreed to shut down his purported charity that bears his name, the Trump Foundation. More accurately, the New York Attorney General forced him to shut it down and to give whatever money it still has to actual charities approved by a judge. The lawsuit demanded Trump repay nearly $3 million to the people who donated to his so-called charity, not knowing that twenty grand would go to a giant oil painting of Trump or to settle lawsuits or to make illegal, unreported campaign contribution that had to be returned. 
New York's outgoing attorney general had already filed suits against Eric, Don Jr., and Ivanka, citing them with persistently illegal conduct. In the face of this unwinnable lawsuit, Trump was forced to back down in his fight to save an organization that bears his name. Just as he had done with the Trump University fraud suit, he said he would win. He backed down, folded, and settled out of court. Political reality forced Trump to back down on the border wall for now. Donald Trump, with other walls closing in, was showing his weakness, showing signs he's the sort who can be made to back down after all. And last night, we learned that special counsel Robert Mueller has asked Congress for the official transcripts of testimony before the Intelligence Committee. It is the testimony of a man who's been an advisor to the president for 10 years, political dirty trickster Roger Stone. Mueller's request for the Stone transcript, say experts, signals he's ready to wrap up his investigation of Roger Stone. Mueller's been checking to see whether Stone did or didn't have contacts with WikiLeaks and Trump simultaneously as the website released Democratic Party emails that had been stolen by Russian hackers. Mueller is apparently checking to see if Stone committed the serious federal crime of lying to Congress in sworn testimony. If Mueller finds a lie or two, he can use them as leverage against Stone to try to get his cooperation to avoid prison like Mike Flynn and Michael Cohen. To get that official transcript, Mueller needs permission from the House Intelligence Committee, which remains under Republican control through January 2nd. On January 3rd, that changes. The walls continue to close in on Donald Trump. While Trump continues to insist that the payoffs to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal were a private matter, not a campaign finance violation, Michael Cohen surfaced on TV to set the record straight. He was very concerned about how this would affect the election, Cohen told ABC News on Friday. Cohen repeated his claim that executing the payoffs was done at Trump's direction after Trump claimed Cohen had done it on his own I don't think there's anybody that believes that, said Cohen, adding, nothing at the Trump organization was ever done unless it was run through Mr. Trump. He directed me to make the payoffs. Cohen said he would continue to cooperate. I'm here if they need me, he told ABC News. It was Cohen who provided the prosecutors valuable evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia and the involvement of the president's three eldest children. And although Cohen's cooperation is selective, talking about some things and not others, he gave prosecutors a lot when it came to those hush money payments for the purpose of keeping the Trump campaign going strong. It was Cohen who led prosecutors to the sources of all the money involved, and it was Cohen's testimony that told them Trump was in the room when the payoffs and their methods were decided, contradicting Trump's claims he knew nothing about them. The president is the previously unknown third person in a 2015 meeting between Michael Cohen and National Enquirer publisher David Pecker. The tabloid executive had just days before Cohen's revelation confirmed that his company had co-conspired with the Trump campaign to cover up the alleged Karen McDougal affair. Trump had asked Pecker what the Inquirer could do to help his campaign. That, says a former assistant U.S. attorney, puts Trump, quote, squarely in the middle of a conspiracy to commit campaign finance fraud. When the new Congress is seated right after the holidays on January 3rd, one of the first orders of business in the House Intelligence Committee will be to investigate apparent foreign influence in the Trump Inauguration Committee. 
The Trump inauguration committee raised far more money than the Obama committee had for a much smaller event. Trump's inaugural committee raised $100 million, and it appears 50 grand came from a Russian-backed Ukrainian politician who's already pleaded guilty to being an unregistered foreign lobbyist and who's cooperating with prosecutors. Accepting foreign money for a presidential inauguration in this country is illegal. Like the campaign, the inauguration is now under federal investigation for illegally accepting donations from foreign sources, mostly Middle Eastern countries, including Saudi Arabia. Trump's also being sued by the attorneys general in Maryland and D.C. for violating the emoluments clause of the Constitution, which prohibits public officials from profiting privately from their positions. A fair amount of those profits are from foreign governments who make it a point to stay in Trump hotels and apartments to curry favor with a president receptive to such things. And... The incoming attorney general for New York State is preparing to launch multiple investigations of the Trump Organization, the president's business company, especially its involvement with foreign governments, just as the outgoing attorney general had already done in shutting down Trump's charity. We will use every area of the law and that of his family as well, says incoming attorney general Letitia James. New York State's tax agency is also considering investigating the Trump family business. He hasn't gotten his wall. Congressional Republicans are suddenly proving they're willing to stand up to Trump to say no to him and to scold him. He was scolded twice by the Senate a week ago today when he was twice rebuked for his support of Saudi Arabia and its crown prince. Sure, most Republican lawmakers continue to back Trump, but remember, on July 15, 1974, President Richard Nixon still had the support of nearly every Republican in Congress. Three weeks later, just three weeks later, by August 7th, only five or six Republicans still supported him. That's how quickly things can change. It takes months and months and months for a thing like this to happen, but when it does, it happens very quickly. Legal experts say it appears Mueller is wrapping up his investigation overall and that he's decided what to do with his findings. Mueller apparently intends to use what he's learned at the upcoming trials, but he can get these findings to Congress much faster in a report that's now expected within the next 90 days and maybe sooner. The cooperation Mueller's now getting can go into that report while we await the upcoming trials, and Mueller can get much more detailed information in that report than would ever come out in those trials. And outside prosecutors say Mueller is also sending a message with his sentence-first, cooperation-later approach. He can now approach witnesses and ask if they want to wind up like Mike Flynn or Michael Cohen, for whom Mueller recommended no jail time, or like the uncooperative Paul Manafort, who will spend the rest of his life in prison. But before these cases come up in court, Mueller can hand his detailed report to the new Democratic-led House, which will be seated two weeks from today. Against the advice of the Pentagon and the Republicans he counts on in Congress, and in a move that pleases Russia, the president has ordered all U.S. troops out of Syria immediately, declaring ISIS has been defeated there. ISIS has been pushed into small corners of Syria, but may still be as strong as 30,000 fighters. Lindsey Graham calls Trump's mission accomplished declaration fake news. It's a complex situation in which the U.S. supports the world's most effective ground troops against ISIS, the Kurds. 
to abandon the Kurds without notice opens up Syria to ISIS once again and enforces a growing perception that the U.S. abandons its allies. And if any American troops remain in Syria after the pullout, they are at grave risk, as are any of our remaining intelligence officers. And Pentagon officials say they're only 20% through training the local fighters it'll take to keep Syria safe from ISIS. The White House made the announcement after Trump's false tweet that ISIS had been defeated in Syria, but was unable to provide details of the pullout, the when, the how, how many, and what the plan is for keeping ISIS at bay there. The White House referred those questions to the Pentagon, which not only didn't approve of the decision, but hadn't been informed of it except by the tweet that everyone else had seen. So the Pentagon referred reporters' questions back to the White House, and so it went, revealing that this decision was made with no real plan, no coordination, a decision that could have tremendous impact by gut and on the spur of the moment. It's a decision that also pleases Turkey, which just happens to be the country Mike Flynn was working for while he was also working as the Trump campaign's national security advisor. This surprise, sudden, no-planning pullout from Syria that may just be a tweet and not an order, since the Pentagon doesn't seem to know much about it. This morning, with his shrinking base angry at him for folding on his border wall government shutdown threat, the White House says Trump will bypass Congress to toughen work requirements for welfare recipients. Trump's making panic moves as he angers his base and his Republicans in Congress in the midst of record low approval numbers from the rest of us. With the Russia investigation and over a dozen other scandals closing in on Trump, moves like these were just what the spin doctor ordered. Salon.com's Bob Seska is not a gambling man, but as he looks to the new year, he's all about the odds. Bob? Thanks so much, Buzz. This will be my final commentary for 2018, so in the spirit of looking ahead to the new year, I thought I'd take some time to consider Donald Trump's Christmas future. Specifically, what are the chances Trump will remain the president or disappear in a puff of orange smock? Here are my predictions. Impeachment. Estimated possibility, 90%. A few months ago, especially prior to the midterms, I would have ranked impeachment somewhere in the range of never going to happen. Not anymore. And it wasn't just the midterms that significantly altered the outlook on this possibility. It was the bombshell Michael Cohen sentencing memo, courtesy of prosecutors in the Southern District of New York, that catapulted impeachment to a very real possibility as far as I'm concerned, especially given the appearance of hard evidence that Trump conspired with Michael Cohen and David Pecker to violate campaign finance laws while committing fraud against American voters. Bear in mind, this doesn't suggest Trump will be convicted in the Senate, but impeachment is merely the process of initiating a trial in the Senate by a majority vote on the floor of the House of Representatives. From there, the chances of a conviction aren't as dismal as you might think, knowing there's a Republican majority in the upper chamber. I believe there's perhaps a 40% chance that once the charges and the evidence from Mueller's ongoing investigation are revealed in a trial, the probability of a conviction will significantly increase. What about resignation? I'm ranking this as an estimated possibility of 55%. On the surface, it seems inconceivable that Trump would resign the presidency given his pathological drive to win, 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 even if it means constantly inventing things that he allegedly won. 
such as his claim that we defeated ISIS, despite the Pentagon and most of the generals saying we haven't. So the question here is whether he even has the capacity to quit. I believe he does. And here's how it could happen. Every day brings new legal jeopardy for Trump and his family, so much so that the only free and clear way out is either seizing executive power beyond the strictures of the Constitution, basically the nightmare scenario, or quite literally resigning and then being pardoned by a newly sworn in Mike Pence, repeating what happened in September 1974, just a month after Nixon resigned. Don't forget, when the going gets tough, Trump has a tendency to run away. When he faces tough questions, he wanders off. Hell, when he faces tough weather, he retreats to shelter to protect his swirly hair helmet. If he faces an indictment or perhaps even a sealed indictment to be unsealed upon leaving office, an incoming Democratic president surely won't help him escape. The only one who can do it is Pence, and Pence needs to be president first. If he can cut a deal with Pence, and if the legal jeopardy is scary enough, he will absolutely bail out, claiming he accomplished everything he could with what he'll surely call the most successful presidency in history. What about an election loss in 2020? I'm placing this estimated possibility at 50%. Frankly, I'm not yet comfortable predicting a big Trump re-election loss in the 2020 general. I remember believing there was no way George W. Bush could win in 2004, and we were crushed when he somehow pulled it off, despite presiding over the most catastrophic terrorist attack in history, followed by a misguided war in Iraq. Given that Brad Parscale is running Trump victory, that's the actual name of Trump's re-election effort, and given how Parscale was the digital director responsible for the social media and internet presence of Trump's 2016 campaign, it's possible that Russia is lurking waiting to pounce again. Neither am I confident that the stupids won't convince more Americans to join them in their stupidity. Call me a cynical Gen Xer, but there are millions of stupids out there, and they vote. Consider how many millions of Americans were duped by Fox News propaganda and Russia's PSYOP. All of that said, it's difficult to see a president with a 39% approval, and falling, actually win. Likewise, the Democrats could put up a hell of a scrap on the heels of a successful midterm. Remember that the big Dem takeover in 2006 bled directly into Barack Obama's victory in 2008, a victory that included more gains in Congress. How about a primary loss, though, in 2020 for Donald Trump? I'm putting this estimated possibility at 65%. It's entirely likely Trump won't even make it to the general election. It could be that a number of Republicans will line up against him in advance of the primaries. Some names being floated include John Kasich, Nikki Haley, Bob Corker, and Jeff Flake. Trump has stupidly declared that he welcomes the challenge, clearly because Trump doesn't know anything. Facing an equally treacherous series of primary challengers in 1968, Lyndon Johnson famously chose to not run again in the face of potentially being embarrassed by a catastrophic and rare renomination loss. And LBJ was a political wizard. Even he didn't think he could survive a multi-candidate primary challenge. Here's the only thing preventing this from happening. The Republican National Committee just closed a deal to unite itself with the Trump re-election campaign, going so far as to share an office. Furthermore, the South Carolina Republican Party is contemplating the elimination of the 2020 Republican primary there. Why? 
Well, it could be because Nikki Haley is from South Carolina and she'd have a relatively strong chance of defeating Trump in that state's primary, embarrassing the president and launching Haley as a serious contender. My conclusion, Trump's presidency could easily crash and burn at any moment. Whether it's any of the above scenarios remains to be seen, but it's almost impossible to see Trump enduring beyond the no-man's land he faces, even in the coming weeks, say nothing of the next six months. As always, don't get happy except for one thing, a happy new year. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. I couldn't agree more. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Bob at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on the Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I'll be back with Bob again on Tuesday, January 8th. What just happened to Obamacare? Earth News, that damned Facebook again, and Congress actually does some good after this. Thank you again so much for using my Amazon link at buzzburbank.com for your holiday shopping. And with two-day shipping, it's still not too late. Your use of that link helps keep this newscast going and free for the listening. So please bookmark it as your shopping button. I got a small commission from Amazon for every purchase you make, so it really helps power this free weekly report. If you'd rather not use my Amazon link, then please support this free independent journalism through the PayPal donate button. On your desktop, it's just under the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, it's just under the title Buzz Burbank News and Comment. And thanks again. The latest assault on Obamacare started three weeks ago today when the Trump administration urged state governments to scrap the rule that said Affordable Care Act tax breaks can only be used to buy health insurance through government marketplaces. The Trump administration is telling states to give those tax breaks also to people who don't use the government's offerings. These subsidies, which were originally aimed at middle-class and lower-income Americans, can now be used for bare-bones policies that don't offer the protections offered by Obamacare, including for those with pre-existing conditions. This move undermines the foundations of the Affordable Care Act, tearing down the standards to which insurance companies had been held. But this past Friday, the news got even worse for those folks and for the Affordable Care Act. Because it was Friday that a federal judge in Texas ruled that the Obama health care is invalid because of a recent change in federal tax law that was made by a Republican-controlled Congress. And unconstitutional, Obamacare is, he said, because it requires people to buy insurance. And without these pillars, the Affordable Care Act cannot stand, ruled the judge, who was appointed by George W. Bush and who has ruled against Obamacare before. Legal experts, conservative and liberal, question the judge's ruling. But the ruling, with nationwide impact affecting over 133 million Americans, came the day before this year's open enrollment period would end. And it threw into doubt the fate of the Affordable Care Act until it is decided by the United States Supreme Court. Nothing changes until that ruling, and perhaps not even after it. Or perhaps then everything changes. Perhaps we go back to the days when one in five of us didn't have any health insurance whatsoever. Kids would no longer be able to stay on their parents' plans until they're 26. Out-of-pocket costs would no longer be capped. Medicaid expansion would be threatened. Preventive health care would dry up, and some patients would have to switch medications. And people with pre-existing conditions would either be unable to find or unable to afford health insurance. 
The ruling by this judge is being appealed, and Democrats take the House prepared to uphold the protections for people with pre-existing conditions, something Republicans had ironically promised to do in their desperate midterm campaigns. For today, Obamacare is still here, still up and running, and covering people who didn't have coverage before, and still vastly more popular than this president or his party's members of Congress who've tried to kill Obamacare 70, 70, 70 times. Now it goes to a conservative-led Supreme Court as Americans pin their hopes on a possibly moderate Chief Justice John Roberts. This week, 200 countries agreed to keep the Paris Climate Accord and to put it into effect, and they planned another gathering for 2020. Countries that need help getting cleaner and greener were encouraged to ask for the help they need, and wealthy nations were encouraged to speak up about what they can offer in the way of help so that everyone moves forward together. The U.S. also signed the deal, despite Trump's vow to bow out. The rest of the nations decided to leave the door open for the U.S. in case Trump has a change of heart, or the next president does. The U.S. cannot pull out until 2020 anyway. What the U.S. got out of this new deal were commitments that co-polluters China and India would meet their goals being held to the same standards as the rest of the nations. China resisted that at first and then capitulated. Those 200 nations debated a report that says fossil fuel emissions must fall by 50% in the next dozen years to avoid serious disruption of the Earth's climate. The report was resisted by oil-producing nations, including the United States. So 200 countries, including the U.S. for now, are committed to fighting man-made climate change, or so they say. But the real test, says an executive of the Union of Concerned Scientists, is what happens when these countries go home from that conference. When the Trump administration said earlier this year that it would loosen car emission rules imposed by the Obama administration, we had to scratch our heads a little. The Trump move was a surprise and a disappointment to the very industry you would think would be happiest about it, the auto industry. It didn't want to loosen the car emission rules, especially since it would still have to meet California standards. So who was happy about the rollback? The answer? The oil industry. Billionaire Charles Koch was happy. He had worked with the biggest oil refining company in the U.S., Marathon Petroleum, to run a stealth campaign to get those fuel standards rolled back. Over on Facebook, a similar campaign was underway by Chevron, ExxonMobil, Phillips 66, and others, urging people to write the government, demanding the fuel and emission standards be rolled back. Big Oil was behind a social media campaign from a group known as Energy For Us that read in part, Support our president's car freedom agenda. File an official comment to support our president's plan for safer, cheaper cars that we get to choose. A Russian troll couldn't have said it any better. A former lobbyist for the coal industry is, for now, the head of our Environmental Protection Agency. With the departure of the scandal-ridden, heavily investigated Ryan Zinke, David Bernhardt is now guarding the henhouse as acting administrator of the EPA after his years of representing fossil fuel. The investigations continue, however, into Ryan Zinke, who quit on Saturday under pressure from his own set of multiple investigations. 
Those investigations involve real estate deals in Montana, as well as his conduct as a member of the president's cabinet. The first person from Montana ever to serve in a president's cabinet has been forced to resign in disgrace. Zinke, however, feels no disgrace, no remorse. Rather, he expressed pride in his accomplishments. Environmental leaders say Zinke did nothing but harm to the environment and the planet and that some of his damage may never be repaired. Zinke also had, as EPA administrator, his own official flag that he had ordered flown over the building when he arrived and taken down when he departed, like a president or a king. Ryan Zinke is gone now. The new guy is a lobbyist for fossil fuels. If you're anywhere near Mission, Texas, by all means visit the National Butterfly Center. It's like walking into a kaleidoscope with more than 60 kinds of butterflies, according to a report in the Guardian newspaper. It's like something from Fantasia, says the center's director. When you walk, you have to cover your mouth so you don't suck in a butterfly. But you'd better get there quickly. The 100 acres that gets covered with monarch butterflies in the spring and the fall needs to make way for the bulldozers. Border wall coming through. Last week, the U.S. Supreme Court let the Trump administration waive more than two dozen federal laws to begin construction on a new 33-mile stretch of that big, beautiful wall that runs right through the Butterfly Center. Quoting the Butterfly Lady as she stood on the banks of the Rio Grande, looking at the natural habitat that's about to be leveled with loud, heavy machinery, they are violating our constitutionally protected rights, and that should terrify everyone. Even if you don't care about butterflies, she said, you should care about this. It was a week ago today that we learned that a week before that, the unthinkable had happened. A seven-year-old migrant girl, immigrant girl, had died in the custody of the United States Border Patrol after just over 24 hours in our custody. Her body temperature soared to nearly 106 degrees. She went into convulsions and died. Initial cause of death determination, dehydration, shock, and liver failure. The Border Patrol reported the little girl had not had any food or water for several days, leading Trumpers to conclude the little girl had died because of her father's neglect. The Border Patrol may have been lying. The girl's father says the Border Patrol is lying. The little girl had no trouble walking across the border with other immigrants who had arrived to turn themselves in and ask for asylum as U.S. and international law allow. It was eight hours before they were transported, held for eight hours overnight in an empty building that has no blankets or benches or furniture of any kind. 27 hours later, 27 hours into U.S. custody, the child was dead from dehydration and shock. Homeland Security is reportedly investigating both its own Border Patrol and the girl's father. Back in May, a toddler from Guatemala died right after being released by U.S. immigration officials. Her family is now suing for $40 million in damages, accusing the U.S. of negligent medical care. Meanwhile, Trump's attempts to shut down the border aren't working. The number of immigrants coming here for asylum grew by 70% over the past year in spite of Trump's efforts. Asylum seekers that were once mostly men are now mostly families with children seeking safety from violence and hunger in their home countries, exercising their human right and their legal right to protect and nurture their children. 
Most of those seeking asylum will be denied. And how do you solve a problem like Facebook? Millions of us have come to rely on Facebook to see and share pictures and stories, the ups and downs of life with our friends and like-minded people. Some of us rely on Facebook for promoting our frontier carving small businesses online. It might even be considered a public utility like water and electricity. That's how much a part of our lives Facebook has become. Perhaps it should be regulated as such. Facebook is, in its own way, an abusive partner. It certainly, clearly, has abused the privilege of its unique position. Yesterday's exclusive from the New York Times was case in point. Yesterday, we learned that Facebook has, for years, been giving other technology giants our personal data, even that which we were told would be private. Facebook shared data and your friends list with Microsoft and Spotify and Netflix and Amazon and others. Netflix and Spotify were allowed to read your personal messages. They weren't looking for dirt. They were looking for money. After a friend private messaged me a photo of a product, I started seeing ads for that precise product on the news websites I visited later. It was about money for that sunglass maker and its ad agency and for Facebook. Quoting an early investor, no one should trust Facebook until they change their business model. We know we've got work to do to regain people's trust, said Facebook's privacy executive earlier this year. The U.S. Congress may need to do some work on this as well. Lawmakers in Europe are already working on it. For all that can and has been properly said about our lawmakers in Washington, every once in a while they come through. They do something, something good, something on which a majority of us, regardless of our divided politics, can agree this week, the Senate overwhelmingly passed a bill that the president will sign, a criminal justice reform bill that eases up on the harsh mandatory sentences that have overcrowded our prisons. Crack now gets the same treatment as cocaine, a distinction that put a disproportionate percentage of African Americans behind bars. The African American community was disproportionately represented behind bars for other drug offenses as well, including marijuana. This bill levels out the sentencing for nonviolent offenders. The criminal justice reform bill called the First Step Act actually expands job training and other programs to keep convicts out of jail once they've done their time. Like all overnight successes, this bill was 14 years in the making and the result of the kind of compromise that does in fact make America great. For one promising moment in time, Liberals and conservatives worked together and achieved a common goal in the name of justice. And there are signs there may be more such reform to come. It could save millions of dollars and millions of lives. And bump stocks, add-on devices that make a rifle fire like a machine gun, like the ones used in the Las Vegas massacre and others, have now been banned by the Trump administration. If a president has the authority to do this, and that may be challenged, Americans would have 90 days to destroy their bump stocks or turn them into the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Destruction instructions would be posted on the ATF's website. Especially after the Las Vegas massacre, bump stocks are a topic on which the NRA does not comment. The search for health and happiness in the new year. Don't call me by my name. And a swearing Santa in the third and final segment up next. 
Well, if you're still looking for gift ideas for the holidays, get them the Heller Bluetooth earbuds from tweakedaudio.com. The Hellers are wireless to hook them up to their favorite songs, phone calls, and podcasts like this one. And the Heller will stay in their ears with five hours of use and 100 hours of standby time between USB charges. The Hellers have a built-in mic, a storage pouch, and comfortable gels in three sizes. Tweaked Audio's wired earbuds come in a range of colors. You can even get buds in sets of two or three. You certainly can't beat the prices for this level of quality guaranteed and it's a perfect holiday gift the shipping is free anywhere on the planet and because everything sounds better on tweaked audio earbuds you can get an extra one-third off their already great prices if you check out with the code bbnc at tweakedaudio.com thank you for supporting this free news through tweakedaudio.com all my other great sponsors and through the paypal donate button at buzzburbank.com Reuters reported this week that Johnson & Johnson knew for decades that its baby powder contained cancer-causing asbestos. J&J is facing thousands of lawsuits accusing its talcum powder causes cancer, and the company continues to insist that's not true, or at least not proven. Women who use Johnson & Johnson powders as part of their hygiene have developed a disease in the linings of their lungs. It's the same disease miners got, breathing dust as they dug and worked the mines. It's called mesothelioma. Reuters reports that Johnson & Johnson didn't tell the FDA in three tests in three labs that the amount of asbestos found in its talc was reported to be, quote, very high. And that was in the early 1970s. As we approach 2019, the company still claims the accusations are untrue, and that its product is safe. Maybe we should call them Generation V, the vape generation. The farms of the tobacco industry are safe, what with the sharp rise in the number of teenagers who inhale vaporized nicotine, the highly addictive chemical found in everyone's villain, cigarettes. We may wind up with more addicts than we had when smoking was not yet the scourge that it has properly become. Nearly 4 in 10 high school seniors vapes. That's 10 times the number who smoke cigarettes. The number of vapors grows each year by 10%. The number who say they have vaped in the past month has nearly doubled. The number of kids who smoke has fallen to its lowest level since 1975, but the number of vapors has more than made up the difference. On the business side, Marlboro is now in talks to buy Juul, the company that makes teenagers' favorite nicotine stick. A third of all vapors, meanwhile, are using those battery units to deliver THC in vapor form. And a new study by researchers at Michigan and Brown Universities finds that with today's exponentially stronger weed than of a decade ago, that's increased the risk for marijuana dependence. Dependence, in this case, is defined as interfering with your life in some way. Marijuana dependence now matches that of people who drink coffee and of those who take anti-anxiety prescription drugs. Can catnip cure cancer? Scientists have for a while understood the chemistry in catnip that intoxicates cats, how that works. But they've also been studying how the plant makes this cat magical chemical called terpene. It involves a two-step process that's just like the one already being used in to existing anti-cancer drugs. Scientists hope to figure out if this process can be used to cure cancer and to protect food crops from insects and disease. 
10 p.m. Christmas Eve. That's the hour out of all the hours in all the year that people have the most heart attacks, according to a study in Sweden, 10 p.m. on Christmas Eve. A university cardiologist says excessive food intake, alcohol, and long-distance traveling are factors in these myocardial infarctions, along with, quote, anger, anxiety, sadness, grief, and stress. Live from New York, it was Saturday afternoon. SNL cast member Pete Davidson wrote on Instagram, I don't want to be on this earth anymore. I'm doing my best to stay here for you, but I actually don't know how much longer I can last. All I've ever tried to do was help people. Just remember I told you so. Pete deleted that post, but there was an outpouring of support for him from friends, other celebrities, and people who understood the level of his pain. The NYPD checked in on him at his apartment. Davidson's co-star in the upcoming movie, Big Time Adolescence, John Cryer of Three and a Half Men, tweeted, Pete is at SNL and accounted for. Davidson's only live appearance that night on the show, on the last show before the holidays, was to introduce the first performance of the musical guest. Davidson has said he suffers from a form of mental illness called borderline personality disorder and is taking medication to improve his health but has also been the recent victim of a lot of online bullying. CBS announced this week that former CEO Les Moonves, who took the network to number one and kept it there until he was fired for sexual misconduct, will not get his golden parachute. Moonves will not get his $120 million severance after 17 women accused him of using his position as one of the most powerful men in show business to have sex with women. CBS hired outside investigators to determine whether Moonves had in fact behaved this way and had, in the course of that, violated his contract. Investigators found that he had and had failed to cooperate with them, at one point giving them his son's iPad to examine instead of his own and conspiring to silence his accusers. Moonves is also accused of nurturing a culture of sexual abuse at CBS, the discovery of which has led to the ouster of the executive producer of 60 Minutes and this morning anchor Charlie Rose. This past week, we learned the network had paid actress Eliza Dushku, best known for her role on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, $9.5 million to settle her sexual harassment complaint. That complaint was filed against actor Michael Weatherly, a handsome staple at CBS and the star of television's 10th most popular scripted show, Bull. During a three-episode arc at the end of season one, Dushku had been told it would lead to at least a four-season run in which she would also play Bull's love interest. But a number of incidents occurred during her work, some of them while the cameras were rolling, so they were captured on film and video. After Dushku confronted Weatherly about the incidents, the love interest storyline was dropped and season two appeared with no back references to her character. And now we know why. And although her out-of-court settlement prevents her from talking about it publicly, Dushku now has the $9.5 million she would have made for the four seasons she was promised on Bull. Michael Weatherly says he was horrified to learn of the impact of his remarks and has apologized. No word yet whether CBS has renewed that very popular show for a third season. It was on the set of Laverne and Shirley that Penny Marshall learned to direct, and she got good at it. And she became the first woman to direct a movie that made over $100 million when she teamed with Tom Hanks to make big. 
And to prove it wasn't a fluke, she broke that barrier again with A League of Their Own. She then went on to direct Robin Williams and Robert De Niro in Awakenings. Penny Marshall was diabetic and died of complications from it at her home in Los Angeles this week at age 75. As a director, she made all of her actors do more than just one take. We'd like another take, too, Penny Marshall. Singer Nancy Wilson was the bridge between jazz, pop music, and soul in the early 60s and 70s. She died this week at age 81. Wilson was the epitome of female empowerment and had one of the first African-American hosted shows in primetime television. Nancy Wilson acted her songs. I have a gift, she said, for telling stories, making them seem larger than life. I love the plays within the song. Nancy Wilson's songs play on even as she no longer does. Janet Jackson and Radiohead lead the class of 2019 at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, Ohio. Def Leppard and Stevie Nicks also join, along with The Cure, Roxy Music, and The Zombies. This year's snubs include Devo, Todd Rundgren, John Prine, Rage Against the Machine, LL Cool J, and Rufus featuring Chaka Khan. Into the Spider-Verse was this week's top movie with over $35 million as Ralph finally fell to fourth place. The Grinch is still a strong third, while Creed II fell to sixth. And it's not too late to catch Bohemian Rhapsody or The Green Book. Opening this week for the holidays, Aquaman, Bumblebee, Mary Poppins Returns, Marwin, and more. It'll be a huge two weeks for Hollywood. That could mean competition for good seats. If only there was some way to get previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets all in one place to help this podcast a little at the same time. That, of course, would be the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. Some enterprising Americans saw stars this week on board a spaceship from a privately owned company. Although it did not achieve orbit, the craft flew more than 50 miles up, which the Federal Aviation Administration defines as the beginning of space. Spaceship Two was from Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic, and and it got him high fives from NASA and from competitor Elon Musk at SpaceX. Branson wants to set up a tourist business for starters around the world in space for a price. This was the first privately funded craft to make it to space and the first U.S. craft to get there since the shuttle program ended seven years ago. This overnight success was 14 years in the making, And it means space is no longer reserved for those with government jobs. None of this, of course, is meant to diminish the achievements of the four young men at Brigham Young University who broke the Guinness World Record altitude for a rocket powered by Alka-Seltzer. At the Kennedy Space Center in Florida, these plop fizz science whizzes sent their rocket a record 883 feet into the air. That is twice as high as the University of Minnesota winners from last year. Memo to Branson and Musk, watch your backs. The man with the beard and the plaid flannel shirt is from the Ozarks, and he's going to jail for a year. David Berry Jr. is at the heart of what conservation officials called one of the biggest cases of deer poaching in Missouri history. Dave got help from another guy, Dave's two brothers, and their dad, Barry Berry, there in the Ozarks. Quoting the prosecutor, Trophy bucks taken illegally, mostly at night, for their heads, leaving the bodies of the deer to waste. They're all going to jail, and will have to pay, between them, $51,000 in fines and court costs. And there's 
one other thing Dave Barry has been ordered to do during his year behind bars. Sit through an entire showing of the Walt Disney animated movie Bambi, which features that iconic scene of Bambi and the mother he lost to poachers. Dave's first viewing will be this Sunday. Don't call me by my name. The bullying will now stop, we hope, for a middle school boy named Joshua in Wilmington, Delaware. The 11-year-old was called stupid and an idiot by his classmates, all because of his last name. His mother said he hates himself and he hates his last name and he feels sad all the time. As a parent, that's just scary. So the problem has been fixed, we hope, by changing Joshua's last name, at least so far as the Wilmington school system is concerned. Henceforth, the boy will now be known as Joshua Berto instead of his birth name, the one that made him a target for bullies, calling him an idiot. He will no longer be known in school as Joshua Trump. From our found money department, it was on a highway in New Jersey near MetLife Stadium where the Giants and Jets play that an armored car, a Brinks truck, spilled cash that blew across the road like snow in a blizzard. People went crazy, according to witnesses. In the middle of rush hour in the morning, they were stopping their cars to scoop up the cash. It is illegal to keep money that isn't yours. Most of these thousands of loose dollars, maybe tens of thousands of loose dollars, have not been returned. Only a little over a thousand of the dollars have. For up to an hour Tuesday night, gas at some Circle K stations in South Carolina, Louisiana, New Mexico, Arizona, and California was selling for a penny a gallon. Circle K employees in South Carolina, feeling helpless at the hands of corporate computers, called police to make people stop taking advantage of the glitch, filling their tanks for a penny a gallon and driving away as though everything's fine. Well, okay, it was really a penny and nine-tenths. And eat oysters, get pearls. A man having them for lunch in a New York City Grand Central Oyster Bar found a pearl in his serving. At first, he thought it was a tooth or a filling and says he was terrified. And then, quoting him, holy crap, I realize it's not a tooth, it's a pearl. The man's still waiting for the official appraisal, but the pearl's estimated worth could be as high as $4,000. If these walls could talk... A man named Igor Campos runs a tax preparation business in a strip mall in San Lorenzo, California. His office is next door to a Chinese restaurant, Chef Kwong. And Igor kept hearing this moaning. But then I'm like, well, who can it be? So Mr. Campos started asking the wall questions like, what's your name? The wall never answered that question, but replied, oh, just please help me. Get me out of here. As it turns out, it was an apparent would-be thief stuck in the grease vent that arose from the restaurant's kitchen. He'd been stuck there for about two days. If only he had known that this Chinese joint has been closed for quite some time and that there was nothing of great value inside. A Los Angeles man, meanwhile, is suing SkyWest Airlines and its big sister American Airlines, saying that because of their negligence, he can no longer drive a car or play with his kids. The man is suing those airlines for letting him get his finger stuck in an armrest. Speaking of fingers, there's a rude one pointing into the skies of Westford, Vermont. Ted Pelkey says he's not trying to get famous, just trying to get justice. Pelkey says he's been trying for 10 years to move his truck repair and recycling business, but has been unable to get a permit from the city. So, 
He got a seven-foot-tall carved wooden replica of a human hand extending its middle finger, painted it Caucasian, and mounted it on a pole that is 16 feet high. He lighted it, of course, so it can be seen from the road at night since it's already dark at quitting time this time of year. What's the point of going to all that trouble if his message to town officials couldn't be seen, after all? Town officials haven't commented, and even though Ted Pelkey's goal may not have been a kind of fame, he got it nonetheless. He says people stop by all day to take pictures and into the evening. People are out there at 11 o'clock at night taking pictures with their Santa hats on, adding, It's wonderful, I think. A warning for last-minute shoppers headed for the mall, no tailgating. With our remaining malls likely crowded, people are being advised to do what a good driver does. Maintain a safe distance between yourself and other people while walking in a mall or anywhere. A new study from the Netherlands says it's a good idea to keep an open buffer around you that keeps you at least two and a half feet from anyone else. The walker in front of you, like the driver ahead of you, may make an unexpected stop, resulting in a rear-end collision, or a sudden turn, or a sudden U-turn. People do this with their shoes as often as they do it with their cars. Researchers analyzed over 5 million moves made by pedestrians and found 18,000 people on collision courses with other people. A 30-inch buffer on all sides, they say, should help you avoid rear-ending a fellow pedestrian. Holiday stress may have been the last straw for a 17-year-old Walmart employee named Jackson in Alberta, Canada. On what he knew would be his last day before moving on to another job, and after handing his boss a formal resignation, Jackson punched in the code to access the store's PA system. Attention all shoppers, associates, and management. I would like to say to all of you today that nobody should work here, ever. He went on for about a minute, accusing the store's management of not caring about the help, accusing the manager of calling him a waste of time, and accusing Walmart of cutting employee benefits to save money. I've been a loyal employee here for over a year and a half, said the 17-year-old, adding, and I'm sick of the bull-ass, bogus write-ups, and my job. On the video that Jackson took of all this, you can hear at least one person cheering his speech. Jackson's complaints are not unlike that of other Walmart employees. The company has no comment other than to say it's investigating the matter. A former NASA engineer may have found a way to keep the Grinch at bay. Mark Rober was frustrated when a porch pirate stole from him and police told him they didn't have time to investigate it. After six months of development, Mark demonstrates his anti-porch pirate tool in a YouTube video. It's a bait box that tracks and marks the thieves. His prototypes were armed with camera phones on four sides that photographed the porch pirate and his vehicle and tracked him by GPS. Mark calls it a glitter bomb, although nothing actually explodes. It does scatter a lot of glitter and releases the contents of a gag store canister of artificial fart spray, usually inside the vehicle being used by the thief. If you're looking for a last-minute gift, KFC is selling fireplace logs that are scented to smell like the colonel's fried chicken. Nothing like 11 herbs and spices roasting on the fire and for just 19 bucks while supplies last. Take note of the log's disclaimer, please don't put face directly into fire in attempt to smell fried chicken. Just throw another leg on the fire. 
And if you see some unusual charges from Amazon in these final days of the shopping season, you may want a word with your parrot. In Britain, a woman who works at a government animal sanctuary took home a parrot after it started swearing at children. Parrots are notorious for their swearing. Scientists say they're not sure where they get it. They swear they're not sure. Anyway, the lady took home the bird, which quickly made friends with Alexa, which dutifully played songs and told jokes at Rocco's command. Rocco also managed to order from Amazon some raisins, broccoli, watermelon, and ice cream. No word on what Rocco had planned for the kite and light bulb he ordered, but we feel a Ben Franklin vibe from this bird. Parrots. You can't trust them with your money, and they swear around children. You've been warned. It seemed to be Santa swearing in public at a public Christmas event in the English town of St. Ives on Sunday. An alarm bell from another event nearby caused a panic, at least in this Santa. Thinking it was a fire alarm, he burst out of his little hut, ripped off his beard, and shouted to the children, Get the F out! He said the big one, the mother of all swear words, quoting one horrified parent, There's no way he should be allowed near a child. The man playing Santa that day has apologized. One mother says she told a boy that wasn't really Santa, but an imposter who would go on Santa's naughty list. And finally, Disneyland was not the happiest place on earth for the Santa in the annual Disney Christmas Parade in Anaheim, California. Santa was not run over by his reindeer or injured in any way, but he did fall off his float when it made a sudden stop. Because he was connected to the float by a chain somehow, Santa never hit the pavement. He just hung from the float as a terrified crowd wondered if it was part of the show, return visitors wondering if they had added something new at Disneyland. Santa finally worked himself free and upright, waved at the crowd, and shouted, Ho, 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 because the ho, ho, ho must go on. I'll be back two weeks from today on Thursday, January 3rd, 2019. In the meantime, Merry Christmas to all and to all, Happy New Year. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next year with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.